Hey there, Twitter. We have a great show for you today. Ronan Farrow is here to talk about his new book, Catch and Kill, and there are so many others here to join us, too. So you stick right there, and we will see you on the timeline. Twitter. I'm Alex Berg. He's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. And you are watching AM to DM Supercharged today because we have quite a show. We do. We're going to be talking to Ronan Farrow, the journalist himself, mm -hmm. um, all about his book Catch and Kill. It's going to be so exciting. And this book is literally all anyone is talking about. So we're really excited to make sure that we give you guys a really great insight into this book and everything that it's about. Mm -hmm. It's quite juicy. We've already read a mm -hmm. bunch of it. Well, here's a tweet from. Well, here's a tweet from Femme Fatale. <laughs> Nothing but respect for my Catwoman, Miss Zoe Kravitz. Sid the Sloth tweeted, Zoe Kravitz has joined the chat room. Ooh. And by chat room, we mean Eartha Kitt, <sighs> Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, Anne Hathaway, Halle Berry, all of the other cat women who have come before. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. Which one of them were, is your favorite cat woman? So I love Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm -hmm. um, I actually, my laptop uh, home screen is um, that scene of her when she's like standing in front uh -huh. of the sign that goes from being saying hello there to hell here <laughs> when she goes through her evil Catwoman transformation. I love that y'all stand Michelle so much uh, <laughs> because like, you know, we had been Aldridge here from Fleabag and he told the story yeah. where he dressed up as her for many days and would only drink milk because he was so obsessed with her. So I guess like she's a big thing for queer folks. I, on the other hand, love an Eartha Kitt. But I did love Halle Berry, even though her movie was trash. Mm. Like I, I'm glad they're rebooting this character because Halle Berry, I think, is the last person to play Catwoman. Correct? Uh, Anne Hathaway? Hathaway. Oh yes, Anne Hathaway. The last one, yes. Oh god, Anne. I forgot about Let, that. We'll one. just say that uh, some Catwomen have been more memorable <sighs> than others. So well, I stand with Halle Berry. You have Michelle Pfeiffer. We should have them battle. Yeah, I actually also just want this movie to be called The Catwoman instead of The Batman. Yeah. Robert Pattinson is playing Batman in this, and I'm like that guy. Also, Zoe Kravitz is such an amazing person to mm -hmm. cast that I'm like, I don't, I don't care about who Batman is. I actually just want to see more of her on the screen at all times. Amen. Batman, take a note from the Marvel people where they're going to make all women uh, versions of their films. So we don't really want Batman. Or give us like a whole Catwoman squad. Yes. <laughs> all that. the Catwomen from time. Oh my God, I yeah. want that. I want that. <laughs> well, let's take it to the timeline. Who else do you want to see cast in the new Batman movie? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm You know what? Just make a Nicole Kidman Batman and make Reese Witherspoon Robin. Um, Meryl Streep can be Mr. Freeze. Gagged. Meryl Streep. At Girl, we have to move on. That all was right. a lot. That's a lot to process. Okay. All right. All right. That, that just happened, Twitter. Well, here's a tweet from Shamari Stone. Texas officer Aaron Dean is arrested and charged with murder. Police say Dean fatally shot Tatiana Jefferson in her home. Dean's bond is set at 200000 Jail records show. Here's a tweet from the Jefferson's lawyer, Lee Merritt. The family of Tatiana Jefferson is relieved that Aaron Dean has been arrested and charged with murder. We need to see this through to a vigorous prosecution and appropriate sentencing. The city of Fort Worth has much work to do to reform a brutal culture of policing. Joining us now to discuss is legal analyst Adrian Lawrence. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So this case seems to be moving much faster than any of us have seen before in regards to officers being charged. Why is that? Um, I think we're kind of now in this phase where we have a lot of officer shootings, unfortunately, involving black citizens, especially we just saw with Amber Geiger and Botham Jean. And it's something that the police officers, it seems now, are responding to. Also, essentially, what I believe it's within at least the last year um, point in time, there's been nine officer shootings uh, involving residents of Fort Worth. And six of those individuals died, five of those individuals were black. And that can be very problematic for having community relations with the Fort Worth community and the police department there. Well, let's talk about some of the uh, aftermath and uh, you know those community relations, what all this looks like now. Um, a photo of a gun in Jefferson's apartment was released by the police um, after her death. Why do you think they did that? And uh, how are people responding? Um, I think we all know why they did that. Uh, and I know that Fort Worth police chief kind of apologized for that. You know, it was in a way to make a Tatiana Jefferson look criminal in some way to incriminate her when I believe the family who owned the gun, they have a right to have a weapon and they had a proper permit for it. And so some thought that it would give the officer Aaron Dean 
some credence in why he fired a shot within seconds of issuing a command from outside the home where he didn't even identify himself as a police officer. It's, you know, this continuing evolving narrative of let's see how we can criminalize the black victim. Mm. So Adrian, tell us, how is the family of Jefferson responding differently than the family of Botham Jean? Well, this family of Jefferson, of course, they are speaking out in terms of they want more in terms of justice. And something that they criticized was Aaron Dean, the officer, being allowed to resign. And we know that Fort Worth Police Chief Ed Krause said he would have fired Dean uh, if he had gotten the opportunity, but Dean was allowed to resign. And one of the reasons that he did that is because he essentially can't be compelled to give a statement to the department as long as he's not an officer. So that's largely to protect his own interests in moving forward with the case. Because now, essentially, not being a police officer, he's being treated like every other defendant. Mm. Now, Jefferson's death uh, took place just 30 minutes away from Botham John's apartment. Um, What do you think both of these cases tell us uh, about the larger issue of policing in Texas? Well, it seems that there is a shoot first, ask questions later kind of police protocol going on, which is very dangerous, especially for Black residents and citizens who are just living their lives in their own homes, unfortunately. And the reality here is this was a welfare check call. It was a non-911. There was no threat or emergency. So for Aaron Dean to have responded with this shoot first, ask questions later, is extraordinarily problematic because essentially you are using deadly force in your position as a police officer when it doesn't call for it. And we saw that with Amber Geiger, even though she was not acting as law enforcement in that moment. But there is a lot of questions. And I think the community has a right to ask that. And something that we did see was that city manager, David Cook, is calling for an investigation review board of the police department in Fort Worth, which is great. But let's talk about training and why these officers are so trigger happy, as opposed to actually figuring out, maybe getting some facts before they fire a firearm. Mm. So Adrian, the officer is now out on bond. What's next in this case? So we are proceeding as a regular criminal case. He's going to get his attorney and they'll decide um, exactly how they want to approach it, whether they want to try to make a plea deal uh, with the prosecutor's office or whether they want to go full force through trial because we kind of don't necessarily know at least his side of the story. Aaron Dean could claim that, you know, the gun went off and it slipped in his hand. Um, And maybe that would give him a lesser charge, maybe something of criminally negligent homicide or possibly manslaughter, that he was reckless in causing that death, which means he faced two to 20 years as opposed to the murder charge he's facing now, five to 99 years. But uh, either way, there's going to be a lot of investigatory review of police training and how they proceed there in Fort Worth. And also, too, um, something that was a very quick move by the police chief was passing the file off to the FBI to look if there's a deprivation of rights charge on that federal level, which is good to have the federal oversight there, especially since there's so many issues right now with Texas police departments and particularly in Fort Worth. Mm. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for joining us today and walking us through this case. Thank you, guys. Here's a tweet from Natasha Bertrand. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg has been hosting secretive talks and off-the-record dinners with conservative influencers in recent months to discuss free speech and partnerships. Among the participants, Tucker Carlson and Lindsey Graham. Here's a tweet from Deadline. Facebook is under scrutiny as Delete Facebook has become a trending topic once again in the wake of reports of the social media platform CEO Mark Zuckerberg having off-the-record dinners with conservatives. Politico's Natasha Bertrand and Daniel Lipman broke the story, and Daniel joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. What were these dinners that Zuckerberg hosted? So they were at one of his houses in uh, California. We've heard one was uh, in Palo Alto. Uh, and people from D.C. Uh, and you know California, they flew to these uh, dinners. They included, uh, as you mentioned, Tucker Carlson, but also uh, folks like Guy Benson, uh, Fox News radio host, uh, Mary Catherine Hamm from The Federalist, Hugh Hewitt, uh, Lindsey Graham. Uh, and it's all as part of Facebook's campaign to try to tamp down any calls for regulation uh, in Washington that President Trump and the Justice Department are making at Google. Mm. So what is Zuckerberg saying publicly about the rationale around these dinners? 
So he actually uh, responded to our story uh, after it was posted, a few hours after, uh, and he said that, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong uh, with meeting with people of different viewpoints. Uh, that's a healthy uh, dialogue to have. Uh, I talked to you know, one person familiar with the dinners, uh, and that person said, you know, they're under no illusions that Zuckerberg is conservative or anything like that, uh, but... He, they think that they, he understands uh, conservative viewpoints and want to, wants to make it right by conservatives. Um, and this our story is kind of generating uh, some liberal buzz because liberals think that Facebook has overcorrected uh, and is declining to take uh, down false uh, Facebook ads from the Trump campaign that accuses Biden of uh, stuff that he hasn't done. Yeah, so uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the conservative point of view. Um, there's this idea that conservatives are being treated uh, unfairly on the platform. To what extent is that actually the case? Well, it's, there's always going to be cases where people like Alex Jones, who is a conspiracy uh, theorist from Infowars, uh, that they get you know taken off Facebook, and then everyone you know cries wolf uh, in the conservative world. But most conservatives and Republicans and liberals, they're free to post whatever they want on Facebook as long as it's uh, not illegal. Uh, and so this is kind of a, uh, a false flag by Republicans uh, to try to get better treatment from Facebook. They're kind of trying to play the refs, so to speak. Mm. So walk us through why Zuckerberg has good reason to be kind of frightened of Trump's White House and the Justice Department currently. Well, Trump has threatened to sue Google and Facebook. Um, you know, for a variety of reasons, including antitrust, Facebook is such a huge company. They have kind of a monopoly in parts of the social media space. Um, and they're also looking at, you know, privacy concerns, whether Facebook and Google uh, and other companies uh, have really adopted strict privacy laws to protect uh, people's rights and consumers' uh, ability not to get bombarded with ads and for people to, you know, for companies to read your uh, every single thought you've ever uh, mentioned on Facebook. Uh, and so those are big concerns as the U.S. tries to follow Europe in cracking down on big tech. Uh, and also just the amount of taxes that these companies are paying, which is not that much uh, in many cases. Uh, there's so many different issues that, uh, you know, come to the fore. For Democrats, uh, one of the most important issues is uh, Facebook's role in spreading misinformation and uh, letting... Uh, foreign actors use their platforms to try to uh, influence the campaign. So to that point, uh, how have we already seen misinformation start to spread on Facebook uh, in terms of the 2020 election? Well, uh, one interesting example is Elizabeth Warren uh, has made the point that uh, she, you know, she, uh, she put up a Facebook ad where saying that Zuckerberg had endorsed Trump uh, and Facebook is, you know, working to help Trump get elected. Um, and her point was, this is, uh, you know, even Facebook will let that ad go through because they're not going to block uh, something because they have this policy where if you're a verified campaign, you can pretty much post whatever you want um, as long as it's probably not violent. Uh, and so that lets campaigns basically get away with saying anything they want. And, you know, since most many Americans get their news on Facebook, that's a huge concern for Democrats who say that Republicans are not playing fair uh, and are you know, spreading lots of fake news on Facebook. Well, it was really interesting to hear more about these dinners. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Coming up, we are talking to Ronan Farrow about his new book, Catching Kill. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Welcome back. I feel like the clock is counting down for our sit down with Ronan Farrow. Yes, as I touch fire. As you touch fire. Very exciting. <laughs> yes, Very we're exciting. almost there. It's coming <laughs> up. It's coming up. But before we get there, we have to do these tweets because they're hilarious and they're just for you. So ready? Yeah. Let's do it. All right, here's a tweet from Bic. If you were in college during the time of Yik Yak, you are an elite. Okay, I don't actually know what Yik Yak is, but if it is something that involves elitism, mm -hmm. I know I'm talking to the right person. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I, I, you know what? That is true. If it's something elite, I may have engaged with it once upon a time. I actually don't know if I was old enough to use Yik Yak, <clears throat> unlike some other people. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie Emoji, you tweeted. 
four-year-old me calling Disney Channel celebrities after Googling their phone numbers. <laughs> Which is kind of true. Like, I don't know if you ever did this as a kid, but you could, like, you could just look up phone numbers of mm-hmm. famous people on... And Yellow Pages was a thing. Oh, well, also Yellow It'd Pages, like... but it actually never went through to them. Oh, really? I Maybe. talked to Justin did Bieber. Did I call? <laughs> I swear I've never called Justin Bieber before. Or am I? I'm joking. <laughs> or hey, you tweet it. Hangovers are temporary. Drunk stories live on forever. They do live on forever, for better or for worse. Unless you black out. Unless you black out. Then so. it's just an erased memory of a time and place you do not exist or feel. <laughs> Brock, you tweeted. The way children pick up animals stresses me out. And it does stress me out. You ever see a kid like pick up a cat and it's like, yeah. You know, they like hold it upside down. Do you ever just see a kid and it stresses you out? That's <laughs> often, <laughs> often. It's like, a child, I don't understand. Why do you exist? We all come from you. Cold. Uh, <laughs> cold. All right, tweet of the day. Yes. And it comes from Chanel. Hints are canceled. Speak the fuck up. And this is the mood I'm having during this cuffing season. If you have something to say, share it. Tweet it. DM it. Say it to me. I don't want this like, like or hint. Say it. I agree. I'm like, in relationships, I'm like, say exactly what you mean. Like, I can't read your mind. Let's stop dancing around this shit and like, just get right to it. So take care of yourself. Don't let that weigh down your your brain. You know, you're letting someone take up real estate in your mind they have not paid for, as someone once told me. Oh, I love that. Release. Send them an invoice for that rent. Ooh. Yeah. (laughs) Well, later, we're talking to Ronan Farrow about his new book, Catch and Kill, so stick around. Here's a treat from MMA. Does anyone else remember the panic of accidentally opening the internet on your parents' flip phone? My mom made it seem like she'd get charged $500 if I opened the internet on her Motorola Razor. Here's a tweet from IEU. I've started using my old Motorola Razor instead of my iPhone 7 because I spend too much time on the internet, but I miss talking to you guys. But the internet is scary, and I hate it. Well, you know, we've been thinking about nostalgic phones today because an article came out yesterday here on BuzzFeed.com about a phone called a Gab. Yes. Is that what it's called? A Gab? It's for the children so that they don't get into any funny business on their mm-hmm. phones. It has very limited options of things mm-hmm. that you can actually do on it. You just can text message, but you can't send a photo message, and you can call your parents, and you can't even, like, send photos because you have to USB drive it into your computer. And who has a USB? Remember when? It's remember when we had to do that? <laughs> Yes, because, yes, actually, we do remember. Yes, yes, actually, we do remember that. I mean, I have to say that this story uh, got me longing for uh, a simpler life. Really? Yes, where I could go out and be less reachable, or I at least don't feel compelled to constantly Mm -hmm. be on some social media app weighing in on whatever the news of the moment is. Yes. Because it feels like that would be nice to have my face out of my phone a little bit more. It is, and we are seeing a rise of people wanting, you know, like a Razor phone these days. Yeah. uh, Because they're like, you know, I spend so much time on these apps. You know, we have that young person who just bought a flip phone because I had an iPhone because they wanted to go out in the world and experience the world. And that is an insane idea. You want to go out there and not have to just stare at Twitter? You mean you want to live in real life? (laughs) What are you talking about? No, when I I remember my uh, first phone, I think, well, I had a Nokia. Mm -hmm. And you could play that little like snake game that would go around. And that was a fun time. Also, I I don't even think you could go on the internet on that one. Then I had a flip phone that it was just like the silver flip phone. Don't even know what the Uh brand of it was. All I could do was like flip open, maybe send a text message, make a call. I remember I literally like super glued rhinestones onto it <laughs> because it was like just such a- Very Carrie Bradshaw. A, yes, I know, but it was like such a piece of junk. Uh-huh. But now I'm like, it would be nice to take that little phone uh-huh. out. And it's also, it is it is actually tiny. Like now it's funny, we started getting like, so much more technical and advanced. Phones went from, you, you wanted a smaller mm-hmm. phone and now they're like, my phone is giant again. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I'll go back in this direction. Yeah. I would totally take the Carrie Bradshaw- bedazzled, I, like fancily bedazzled. Reason. I don't even want, so you spoke a lot about, you know, access to tech and access to the internet. I want my old Blackberry back because it just was more functional. Like typing on there was just yeah. really, and it felt good because you hit a button and there was a release. Right now I just hit this thing and sometimes I don't even know if I'm typing. So I need that physical response. I sound like I'm talking about a person. You're like, when I'm with my, my best friend when right here. Yeah, I mean, but that was part of the problem. Okay, Blackberries are great because um, it was easy to like mm-hmm. hit all the buttons, you know, you weren't going with like the touchscreen yeah. business. So I don't know. I, I mean, am I really going to go out of my way to get a whole new phone just for this purpose? No. I don't really know. But I think what what we should end on today is that I think these phones were a way in which you signaled a personality type. You know, currently, 
everyone has an iPhone or you have an Android. And there are the divides of like an iPhone person and an Android person. But when we were younger, it was like, are you a Blackberry person? Are you a Razor? Do you have a Sidekick? Do you have whatever, an LG flip thing? So mm -hmm. it really became a personality type. And you know, I too, even today, am a Blackberry person, even though I carry wow. an iPhone. Wow, wow. Thoughts and prayers mm -hmm. yeah, to you, you, sir. Thank you. Well, let's take it to the timeline. What type of phone were you before iPhone took over? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. I was definitely the like piece of junk cheap phone because <laughs> my parents were ne mm -mm, not having it. Drag yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, later on, we are sitting down with journalist Ronan Farrow. More AM to DM is up next. <laughs> Commuting to and from work can sometimes be the most draining part of your day. Lucky for you, we have some commuting hacks to get you through. This is Fuel Your Go, presented by the all-new 2020 Nissan Versa and energizing your commute. And today I'm joined by Coco Butters, Jameer Pond. Welcome. Hey, hey, Alex. I'm so happy to see you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me. Of course. All right, well, let's get right into it. Yeah. What can you do to pump yourself up for your morning commute? Mm -hmm. Well, I love playlists and I love like Spotify and I love iTunes. Uh, what is that? Apple, Apple Music. music. I iTunes. I'm old. And uh, Tidal. <laughs> I, I am too. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. making sure we're on the same page. Yes. No, but Spotify for me is like the way to go. Um, I just love to get into music, like the Deep House in the morning, yeah. and uh, 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 Bossa Nova in the morning. Bossa Nova's a really good one. I, I wouldn't think of turning on Bossa Nova on my own. Yeah. But I feel like the uh, like a little beat, right? It's a little, just a slight little Brazilian jazz in the morning to kind of take you in a positive space. So I love to have like positive energy mm -hmm. in the morning. For people who aren't into music, um, yeah. what can they do uh, during their morning commute what can they listen to well uh we're a big fan of podcasts where Indeed. i'm from in brooklyn mm -hmm. um i love <laughs> <laughs> in the country of brooklyn <laughs> um i love podcasts also in the morning uh it has to be very interesting so one interesting me personally i listen to black girl podcast which is an amazing podcast by five black women and just getting the intel of what women are going mm. through surprisingly makes my commute a lot smoother <laughs> i didn't i didn't really know but that and a uh, mogul which goes inside uh, the hip hop industry and tells all the amazing stories of hip hop. That that sounds really good. Like especially for a morning yeah. commute, like kind of you're waking up in the morning. Yeah. It's, it's getting you into things. Mm -hmm. Like is that like a storytelling kind of podcast or like is it? Do yes. They just interview people. Yeah. So so they do they do a little bit of both. They interview and they also tell like stories that went on behind the scenes and uh, uh, kind of during the trenches of what but like built hip hop. So mm -hmm. I'm really amazed by that stuff. I get to be like a little music nerd or mm -hmm. geek and it satisfies me. So I love things like that. I love walking into work feeling already informed and like yeah. what's going on. So I love listening to The Daily. Um, for someone like me who wants to know and stay on top of the news, what else should I be listening to? So The Daily is amazing. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Up First on NPR is also really great. They give you like quick news. So it's news in under like 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I get to enjoy myself because News is very heavy, and yeah. you know, I don't want to know about what people are doing too, too, too much in the morning. I still want to enjoy. So, having a little 15, 13, 15 minutes of news every morning is. The commute back home can get kind of stale after a while, so, what's a great way to freshen that up? Oh, if you're not in a rush, right, and you're driving home. I would say take the scenic route, kind of get off the highway, see a little bit of scenery, yeah. clear your mind. Because sometimes you get so messed up in traffic and yeah. honking yeah. horns and you don't have enough to clear your mind. So I would get off and drive, take that scenic route. I love that. Okay, how do I decide which route to take, though? Well, you know, it's a good option. Waze for me is a really mm -hmm. good app. Mm -hmm. One, because I never know where I'm going. And two, Waze provides scenic routes where you can have options for tolls, options for no tolls. So it gets you home a little longer, but it's still beautiful in the same Get to process. see the view. Get to see the view. My final question for you is, if people want to boost on their ride home, is oh, audiobook yeah. the way to go? Perfect. Yeah, audiobooks are perfect. Because like I said, you spend so much time at work or in an office or whatever you do, and you're working on somebody else's time. So you really need time for yourself to kind of clear your mind and hear informative things. So like one of my favorite is The Alchemist, uh, which like helps me mm. a lot. Sometimes I feel like I, I got a goat and I sold a sheep. And <laughs> when am I going to get this sheep back? And so, you know, you, you need to kind of get that in your internal, kind of keep you moving. And then more than enough by uh, Elaine Walter Roth is amazing too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm very in love with those two audiobooks right Right now. Yeah. Oh, I feel like that one would be such a good one just when you're processing your day on yes. your way home. So, yeah. yeah. 
Jameer, thank you so much for joining me. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Alex. And we want to know what your favorite commuting hacks are. Take it to the timeline and tell us using the hashtag AM2DM. Stay tuned for more AM2DM up next. ago, Ronan Farrow published the story, From Aggressive Overtures to Sexual Assault, Harvey Weinstein's Accusers Tell Their Stories. Since then, he's reported on alleged misconduct at CBS, the New York Attorney General's office, Brett Kavanaugh, and more. Now he joins us to talk about his new book, Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and Conspiracy to Protect Predators. Good morning, Ronan. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Thrilled to get to talk to you. And though this book has been out for, what, technically mere hours? Yeah, a few um, hours now. A few hours now. Big reaction, though. Yeah, big big reaction. Um, And in advance of the publication, um, there was a statement from executives at NBC News and from Matt Lauer denying the allegations. Um, Did you anticipate that it would get such an intense and immediate response? You know, every story that I work on, there is a smear machine that spins up beforehand, Mm -hmm. legal threats. So it is a little bit of an occupational hazard Mm -hmm. when you're an investigative reporter working on stories about powerful interests. In this case, we've seen legal threats from Matt Lauer that you alluded to, uh, from Dylan Howard, the one of the top executives at the uh, National Enquirer and AMI, its publisher, uh, who actually has hired lawyers around the world to try to ban the book, mm-hmm. to threaten booksellers. And we just got word in the last few hours that a couple of big booksellers in Australia actually caved that. So even as it's one of the top-selling books on Amazon around the world, all of these readers in Australia are saying, like, where's my Kindle copy? So all of this to say... This is an important conversation happening about free speech Mm. and the kinds of threats and pushback that you alluded to are part of the job, but it's been great to see how brave sources keep coming forward anyway Mm -hmm. and how the public Mm -hmm. is really pushing back on this sort of tactic. Mm. Well, staying on NBC uh, for just a moment, um, are you surprised that NBC News chairman Andy Lack and NBC News president Noah Oppenheim still have their jobs after all this? You know, I'm a reporter, not an activist, and it's not for me to say what should happen in response to facts that I reveal. My job is to just rigorously and fairly interrogate those facts. We fact-checked the hell out of this book for months and months, have an incredible fact checker, Sean Lavery, who's one of the heads of checking at The New Yorker, one of the best checkers in the world. He scrutinized every sentence of this. He actually was on a fact checking call so long in one case, 10, 11, 12 hours, that he got a, like a stress nosebleed afterwards. So someone send that man an edible arrangement or something. <laughs> um, but the point is it's airtight and the responses from NBC executives and everyone else discussed in the book, that's all in the book. And I, I admire tremendously my fellow journalists who I worked with at NBC who are now in a state of anguish over the revelations about a paper trail of secret sexual harassment settlements at that company. They are asking tough questions. I think that's correct. Mm. Do you think that Oppenheim and uh, Lack should still have their jobs? You're, you're, you're tough. You just hit the same question again. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not going to answer that because it's not my job to say that. I do think that it is extraordinarily admirable that journalists at NBC are calling for accountability and transparency. It's a company that has declined repeated requests from both inside and outside of that company for independent reviews. Um, They want some kind of a response and answers. And Chris Hayes got on air last night and really held their feet to the fire and said, this is important journalism and they shouldn't be trying to squash it. Mm. Well, according to your reporting, how did American Media Inc. engage in catching killing stories related to then-presidential candidate Donald Trump and his campaign? So this book is about big patterns of behavior, cover-ups in the world of media, Uh, tactics that are deployed to silence brave sources who are trying to speak and to silence reporters who are trying to break those stories. So that's a crazy cloak and dagger narrative with uh, a literal international espionage plot that plays out where I'm getting staked out and followed and um, people with false identities are coming after me and sources. And it's also uh, about systems and patterns in the media world, Mm -hmm. including at NBC, where I uncover these secret settlements, including at AMI, the publisher of the National Enquirer, um, where I, I follow a trail of clues from AMI collaborating collaborating with Harvey Weinstein to kill stories and to go after accusers, all the way to the top, if you will, which is the relationship between AMI and Donald Trump. Some of the biggest political stories in recent memory have been about AMI buying and burying stories for Donald Trump. I broke some of those stories. Wall Street Journal did incredible work on those stories. And in this book, There are new revelations about how closely Trump collaborated with the Inquirer. There is a new previously undocumented case involving an allegation against Trump and Jeffrey Epstein and the Inquirer sending its folks to try to pursue that, maybe with the idea of buying and burying it as well as part of this pattern of behavior. There is evidence 
that AMI destroyed material in a sort of vault of secrets about Trump right before the election. Um, so this all explains why Dylan Howard of AMI is trying to get this book banned around for the world. Sure, for sure. And yesterday, people were really obsessed with this fact that you know Trump uh, documents related to Trump may have been destroyed. What are the implications of that if this does come out to be, as you say, it is true, but what happens when we find out more about those, those So documents? this is a hugely important story, and I have a lot of respect for all the political reporters who have worked on it, on it in recent years. Uh, AMI ultimately signed a non-prosecution agreement with federal prosecutors admitting to potential violations of campaign finance law. The fact that they bought and buried stories for Trump was not just a a media story. It was a story about the future of our country. Uh, For months and months, not only did they push pro-Trump propaganda collaborating with his team, they suppressed information that might have affected the political conversation. So because this is a story about the ways in which the media can become an instrument of suppression at the behest of powerful people, this is a great example of how all of our futures are affected by that. Mm. Speaking more about the system itself that allows this kind of uh, behavior to persist, um, in the book you uncover a series of private settlements that were paid to accusers. Um, This is across organizations from NBC to the Weinstein Company. Um, Just how widespread are non-disclosure agreements in keeping stories uh, about abuse from going public? I will tell you that to this day, sources in this book are terrified about breaking their non-disclosure agreements. And that's true of some of the brave people who spoke from within NBC describing a culture of abuse there. It's true of sources at AMI who revealed some of these explosive bombshells about that company. Uh, It's true in the private espionage world where a lot of sources did this incredible thing of going for, in one case, uh, literally uh, becoming a whistleblower after having followed me around and tried to squash my story. So there's two sides to this. One is huge obstacles to speaking, right? These non-disclosure agreements uh, terrify people And there are serious threats to enforce them. NBC was threatening to enforce these agreements as the Lauer news started to bubble up during 2018. Um, uh, But on the other hand, this is a book about brave sources who stand in defiance of that and say enough is enough and find a way to get the truth out anyway. So I hope people close the back cover Mm. of this book and feel some uplift, some optimism. I certainly do. Mm. Do you have a sense that uh, these settlements are still happening, this practice is happening so widely, despite all of the reporting about it now and uh, the conversations that we're having about them? It is absolutely happening Mm -hmm. to this day, and I described recent examples of it up to and including this year. And I think correctly, there's a conversation happening in the media world and beyond about whether that should be the case. CBS, where I also uncovered a pattern of the secret settlements, has stepped away from those kinds of agreements. A lot of big companies like Uber have pledged to actually never use them in cases of sexual harassment and assault. And actually, on a a legal level, legislatures across the country have started to take up this issue of, hey, maybe there should be a limit. There's plenty of valid applications for non-disclosure agreements. I'm not saying the institution is completely bankrupt. But in cases of sexual violence, I think we should take a second look. Mm-hmm. Well, in your book, you say that Hillary Clinton's campaign reached out to you to talk about a big story you were working on. What happened there? So, you know, the, the book on this matter, as on all matters, is really measured. And there have been a lot of politicized headlines saying, you know, Hillary Clinton squashed the Weinstein story. And, and that's not really what the book asserts. Mm-hmm. What it does assert is that as news of my reporting started to filter into political circles— and people like Hillary Clinton's associates got word that I was working on Weinstein, Um, allies of Weinstein did appear to become nervous. And it was raised with me as I was trying to schedule an interview with Hillary Clinton for my foreign policy book, for which every other living secretary of state had agreed to an interview, and she previously had agreed to an interview, that there was an apparent effort to cancel that interview after they raised concerns about the reporting on Weinstein. And, you know, that that is not... uh, 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 an example that shows what Hillary Clinton was or wasn't thinking. I'm very careful to say, Mm. you know, she says this is a coincidence and maybe there were other reasons she got cold feet. Um, And she did ultimately later when I said, hey, I'm going to have to disclose that you guys had this weird conversation with me and then you're the only missing Secretary of State in this Mm. book. Give me a, a brief phone interview. So she was gracious to do that. But It is an example of how power protects power. Mm -hmm. And Harvey Weinstein was one of Hillary Clinton's big Hollywood bundlers. He brought in a lot of money for her. They were friends. And uh, it was a personal moment of gut punch to me, like so many of these sort of plot twists in this book, where people that I thought would support that kind of reporting actually were very leery of it. Mm -hmm. And this morning, you know, conservative outlets have really clung to this Hillary Clinton Mm -hmm. thread here. Why do you think they're so obsessed with this? And do you think that's going to deter from some of the points you're making in your book today? 
Oh, I don't think so at all. I think, look, my reporting has been about Republicans, it has been about Democrats, and it's about holding powerful people and the network of powerful people that mutually protect and reinforce accountable. Hillary Clinton has had to answer some tough questions about the fact that multiple women have now said, including prominent women, that they warned her campaign about Harvey Weinstein being a liability. And the documents in this book show that they continued to communicate with him to entertain the idea of a documentary that he was flogging right up until the end, right before uh, my story became public. Mm, And do you think that in any way was she trying to cover up for Weinstein during this? You know, I'll leave people to interpret the facts in there. Again, I'm very careful to be uh, gracious to her in this account of events and to not impute any thinking to her that, you know, I don't know her private state of mind. Um, But on the other hand, you know, it does tackle the question of how many powerful people around Weinstein closely linked to him handled the fallout. And she is one person who was caught up in that. I will make another point, which is I think that just as it is correct to scrutinize those mutual reinforcing relationships of power, uh, I think there's also a lot of unfair blame that gets distributed mm-hmm. in, a, in a kind of misogynistic way. You know, Meryl Streep is a character who shows up in this book, and we have conversations. And, um, you know, I in no way uh, am asserting that Meryl Streep is a perfect person, but I do think that she's emblematic of a lot of women around Harvey Weinstein immediately started mm-hmm. to get the blame. Mm-hmm. There's explosive rape and sexual assault allegations against a powerful guy, and like five minutes later, people are saying, oh, but was it Meryl's fault? Mm -hmm. So again, not saying her hands are totally clean. I don't know, you know, it doesn't delve into the details of her relationship with Weinstein, but there is no factual reason to to think that she knew Mm -hmm. about the worst of his offenses, and I think it says a lot about the culture that there was such a quick push to blame her on Mm -hmm. other women. Mm. Um, Now, part of the culture is that the media organizations uh, where all of these stories of sexual misconduct um, emerged have also been entrusted uh, in reporting on allegations um, and just generally reporting on stories that impact the lives of women. Um, So to what extent uh, can we still trust these media organizations, and especially a place like NBC, uh, in doing this kind of reporting? This book is a tribute to the many, many brave reporters who have worked on breaking open conspiracies of silence, like the ones that formed the heart of of Catch and Kill. And it is very much a pro-free press book. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think it is impossible to close the back cover of this book and come out with anything but um, a a sense of the vital importance of the press and the peril of the kinds of authoritarian attacks on the press that we see from President Trump and others. Um, Calling the, the press an enemy of the people is wrong and it's dangerous. And this book illustrates the peril of what happens when we allow powerful people to subvert the press and to turn them into instruments of suppression, but also the wonderful transformative power when reporters and their brave sources refuse to stop. And I'm not talking about me there. This book is about a whole bunch of reporters that faced a lot of opposition and kept going. Mm -hmm. And you really did keep going. I mean, you left NBC, you went to The New Yorker to continue the reporting that has become so well-known. And we have to ask today, like, do you think institutions are still needed for reporters like yourself to continue to do this high-impact journalism today, even if these institutions are still compromised? You know, on the one hand, it's great that we're seeing kind of a democratization where there's like great kind of uh, citizen journalists doing reporting on Twitter and just putting it out there. On the other hand, I think that this story really illustrates how there is still an important role, um, an important uh, set of moral obligations for institutional journalism. Because when you're kind of on the run and sources are telling you to get a gun and you're getting personal legal threats from a powerful person saying, I'm going to wipe you out with all these high-profile lawyers, uh, you need an organization behind you that's not going to fold to that, that's not going to hem and haw and say, oh, but do you have enough? And get very concerned about the conversations they're secretly having with those hostile sources. You need a news organization that's going to do what The New Yorker did in this story, which Mm -hmm. was they saw the reporting that I had accumulated and that had previously been killed by others and said, oh my God, let's race to get this out and do it right and thoroughly and to protect me legally. It was, you know, the first time where someone actually responded to those legal threats and said... Uh, no way. We're going to stand by him to the end. So I hope this is also a lesson for every outlet that, thank God, uh, stands by their journalists Mm -hmm. and the reporting and defends them even in the face of threats because we need more of that. Well, on a personal note, you you do include your own story in this book, and you've acknowledged that at one time you even encouraged your sister Dylan to move on from sexual violence. Um, How has your own growth and experience with this issue informed your lens when it came to this reporting? Yeah, you know, for a long time in in this book, and this is part of the story in it, I um, struggled with this question of sincerely not wanting to be the story. None of us as journalists Mm -hmm. want to be the story. And 
and wanting to keep the focus on the sources who I had seen go through so much to to reveal these important things. And you can see me on air and in interviews for months and months kind of dodging the questions and saying, you know, Mm -hmm. yes, I know you're asking these questions about was the story shut down and did you face uh, intimidation tactics, Uh, but let's just, let's focus on the women. And that was correct on one level, but I also started to realize, especially as more and more sources approached me with evidence of a cover-up surrounding stories like this, um, that the tough journalists asking those questions were right too. And that, the story of why these stories don't get told was also of paramount importance. And so the moment I decided, okay, I've got to do this and it's going to have to involve me, um, that led to it being a book, which is a format where you can kind of do that in an honest way. And, and it also led to a decision that I had to be really vulnerable about the moments in which I hadn't really lived up to my own ethical obligations. And part of that story is what you allude to, that my sister you know, did this incredibly brave thing mm-hmm. and stood by an allegation of sexual abuse um, against a, a powerful man and a powerful mm-hmm. smear machine that went after her and my mom. And uh, she never wavered in that. And when she wanted to come forward again in, in recent years, I was one of those guys, I think like a lot of guys, when someone in their life goes through this, saying, why can't you just move on and shut up? Mm-hmm. You know, why, yes, sure, maybe it's true, but can't we just sweep it under the rug a little bit, you know, and not deal with the, the fallout from this. We've been trying to get away from this for years. And part of the evolution that I go through in this book is coming to understand how wrong I was and how right she was. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as I read this book, and as I've witnessed in recent years, just a great outpouring of trauma and pain from so many survivors who have um, dealt with these issues. One of the questions I often ask myself is, so what now? You know, um, so you said that you hope that people close the cover of this book and fuel some hope. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. This is a book about the systems that stop the truth from seeing the light of day and protect powerful people accused of hideous crimes. But it's also a book about how over and over again, when you see crimes and cover-ups, you also see someone who's brave enough to expose it. Mm. It is a tribute to whistleblowers. It's a tribute to reporters who make sure the stories of whistleblowers see the light of day and institutions that stand by those efforts. And there's a reason why it ends on the hopeful note that it does, which I won't reveal here. Spoiler, it's nonfiction, but spoilers. Um, And I I sincerely hope that it'll be part of a larger conversation that's happening about the need for a free press in this country. For sure. Well, Ronan, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here, guys. So great to talk to you. And as journalists, we appreciate that you want us to have deep conversations about things that matter most. Thank you. Well, Catch and Kill is available now. Up next, I'm talking to Cyrus Grace Bonham. Stay tuned. Interview Magazine tweeted, Cyrus Grace Dunham's memoir, A Year Without a Name, is a brave, purposefully untidy exploration of young identity coming to terms with itself, body, and soul, with a lot of earned observations along the way. And Cyrus joins me now to talk about their debut memoir, A Year Without a Name. Good morning. Hi, thank you for having me. It's so great to meet you because I've been hearing such wonderful things about your book through all my queer friends. I I really appreciate that. I love to be in community with you. Yeah. So in your book, you explain that this is, in this this memoir, is uh, it's about a, it's called a year without a name. Excuse me, my throat is really cracking up today. It's a year without a name. Explain that to me. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't figure out the title until about a year into the writing process um, when I had realized that my given birth name was no longer working for me, mm-hmm. but hadn't yet reached a place where I knew what I wanted my next name to be. Mm-hmm. And the title kind of came to me one day, and I thought that it sort of distilled what I was working through in the book, which was this perpetual experience of floating between identities or, or containers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of the only title I ever really thought of, but it just felt like the best way to describe something that I didn't think would be so resolute. Mm-hmm. And why did you think now was the great, a great time to share that story for the world? You know, um, I really was, I've always written and um, I ha- have a pretty ongoing like journaling practice and I was just going through a ton of changes in my life and some close friends of mine really encouraged me to think about what it would be like to turn that into a book project and to turn that into something in book form. Um, And I don't know if I can speak to whether it's an appropriate time for it to be in the world, but I I did feel like I wanted to 
try to capture the experience of going through a gender transition Mm -hmm. from within that space rather than looking back on it. And that's something that I really would have appreciated having the opportunity to read at earlier points in my gender journey. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) whatever you want to call it. Journey exploration. And in the book, you talk a lot very openly about being unsure about the process you're going and the routes you're taking. Why was it important for you to share that so intimately? Um, I think there's such a pressure in the world and also within the genre of memoir to offer something that gets kind of tied up at the end, something neat and clean. And I also think that in this moment of increased trans visibility where the world is so shaped by people who don't even believe that Mm -hmm. trans people are real, Mm -hmm. um, there's a pressure to offer the facade of, of having no doubt whatsoever. And from the relationships that I have and have been shaped by with trans and queer and gender nonconforming and non-binary people, I know and I think so many people know that it's not possible to move through a process like this without doubt and without fear. And I felt like I really owed it to myself and to my loved ones and to the people who would take the leap of faith to read my book, to be honest about that. Mm. And you get really honest in the book. And one area you get honest about is your sister, Lena Dunham, uh, and struggling with her fame. She's an incredibly famous person. How did writing this memoir help you reconcile that kind of battle you saw in your life? Um, I think there were a lot of moments where I didn't want to write about it, you know? (laughs) And I thought, this is mine, and this is something that I have been working through, and I will be working through my whole life. Um, but at a certain point, I was like, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to make yeah. the choice to write something within the memoir genre, I know for myself that I have to try to get to a, as authentic a place as I mm-hmm. possibly can. And the truth is that as I was coming into consciousness around my gender and the ways that I didn't identify with my assigned female gender, and as I was also coming into heightened political consciousness mm-hmm. around the systems of power and violence that shape our society— my sister was also getting famous. Yeah. And I can't actually separate those threads. Yeah. And those are the threads that have shaped me. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I feel like I owed it to myself and this book to be real about that. For sure, for sure. And, you know, your sister released a memoir in 2014 that kind of shone light on kind of the intimacy and discussions around your family and its new fame. And you tweeted this uh, tweet that we have here that's actually been deleted. And you said, Today, like every other day, is a good day to think about how we police the sexualities of young women, queer, and trans people. Uh, so what was the larger point you were trying to make with that tweet and also in your book? Because I think you were grappling with that idea idea of policing bodies in space throughout it? Um, I think what I was trying to communicate then, I was younger and I mm-hmm. definitely saw things differently. Um, but the, the heart of what I was saying, I think, stays true, which is that I don't, be- I believe that in a world of so much expectation and so much force and violence around who everyone is supposed to be, that one of the most important radical and radical things we can do is give people the space to determine their own stories. Mm-hmm. And also, beyond that, to live self-determined, autonomous lives. And yeah. we both know that, that the, our world does a lot to prevent people from being able to do that. For sure. But I know for me, um, no one else gets to tell me what my story is. For sure, for sure. So, you know, a lot of parts about memoir writing is about dissecting your own positionality in the world. You know, we come from places of privilege, both of us being able to be in media. How did you think about privilege in this book when you're sharing it with the world? Um, I think it was really important to me to work through trans identity as something that doesn't exist in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. So particularly as a person who benefits from white supremacy and grew up in a family with access to wealth and resources and safety, um, I really wanted to look at the ways in which my transness is necessarily shaped by that. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, what, as we, like I said, as we see this like increasing moment of trans visibility and so many people that I look up to and so many thinkers and activists have said this so much better than I ever can, transness can easily be incorporated into public view as something that exists separate from Mm -hmm. race and class and disability and immigration status. Um, And I can't change who I am, and I can't change the, the life that I've led so mm-hmm. far, but I can do my part to try to be honest about the way that those things are intersecting, and I can do my part to try to be real about the fact that being a trans person in public and being a white trans person in public isn't going to shift the way in which power and resources are um, allotted in our society. 
Um, and it's about so much more than that. It's about real material redistribution mm -hmm. of who, who has power and who has security. For sure, for sure. Well, Cyrus, thank you for so thoughtfully talking to me about this. I more. appreciate really it. really excited. You. It's in the world. Thanks for, for having sure, me. For sure. Well, A Year Without a Name is available today everywhere books are sold. Up next, we are reading your tweets. Welcome back. What a show. All right. We covered a lot of ground. We, we really yeah. took out through the whole timeline today. We, we sure it's did. It's really <laughs> something. Yeah. I, mean, I have to say, it was very cool to get to talk to Ronan Farrow um, just about this book, having seen the cascade mm -hmm. of headlines about it in the lead up. Yeah. Wild to think that today is actually the day that it's being published. It's it's incredible. And I can't wait to see people reading it and reacting yeah. there's so many morsels through, throughout. I would say go to the index and just start scanning oh my, the all names. the names. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everyone's in there. Maybe you're in it. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Well, before all of those interviews, we asked, who do you want to see cast in the new Batman movie? And Bifarella Von Queef tweeted, gotta go with Lizzo and Giancarlo Esposito. Okay. Uh, Lizzo. How could I how could I forget? Who would she play? Um, there is a Batgirl character. That would be... Which was, had been played by Alicia Silverstone <gasps> in... That's right. Um, when they acted like Robin was a gay. <laughs> that, that was in one of them. But that would be amazing. There's also Poison Ivy. Oh, that would be sickening. I think she... I don't know if she's dressed up as Poison Ivy. I'm imagining that in my head. Yeah. I can see it. So, so there are choices. There are choices. Okay. Well, we asked, what cell phone did you have before the rise of the iPhone? Pedro, you tweeted... A razor and, of course, a Blackberry Pearl. A Blackberry Pearl, that sounds very fancy. It's the tiny one. It's like the, they tried to make it more feminine. So, okay. like, it was like women identified folk were supposed to have the tiny one, men had the big one. It's all gender. I mean, you know, like, how could I ever use a, a other kind of phone? I need my little, <laughs> from my, my tiny little women hands. Tiny over lady here. hands. A little, yeah, a can't, little special can't phone. Can't do with the, the big Blackberry. That is one thing I can live without. Wow. I'm surprised <laughs> I didn't want the Pearl. Anyway, that's for another day. Our own Robert Beeman at it had a Blackberry, still have a Blackberry. I can't give up the physical keyboard. It's key to my ability to multitask. Beeman, I have questions for you. Like, do you have to update this BlackBerry often? How are you, like, can you text other people who don't have black? Like, how does this work? I feel like Beeman has goals. I would love to look Oh, we're told, he said it's new. So well, I guess oh, they, they actually creating, we can solve all our problems by getting new Blackberries. They are creating new Blackberries. It's just like, they're not as good as the old ones. Sorry, Beeman. Yeah. Well, thank you to our guests, Jameer Pond, Adrian Lawrence, Daniel Lipwin, Lipman, Cyrus Rice, Cyrus Grace Dunham, and Ronan Farrow. We will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day, Twitter. I just love all the guests. I'm so excited about them. <laughs> That's what that is. <laughs>